Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Last week, I told you about a wedding that I did right at the beginning of the service, and it was like the worst wedding I had ever done. And uh, fortunately, God was in it, and the people are still married to this day, which is a nice thing, but I kind of messed it up. Uh, But I have done actually hundreds of weddings, and it's an interesting thing. Uh, Probably most of you have been involved in a wedding. You know, maybe it was your wedding. Uh, Maybe it was a friend's wedding and you were in the wedding party, but it's kind of an amazing thing. As things sort of steep up and as the time gets closer and as you do the rehearsal and then you come the day for the wedding and everyone's really nervous and they're walking around, everybody's looking great and they're in the church and all kinds of things are happening. And I'll give you a little glimpse. I always go back, of course, with the groom right before we come out. So the groom and the best man are there. And I always ask the groom, so how are you doing? You know, how's it going? Are you nervous? You know, usually they'll say no, but what do we all know? He's nervous. He's really nervous, like he can't swallow and all that. And I'll usually try to tell a joke to just try and ease the tension a little bit. My favorite joke, and it's not really a joke, it's actually a practical joke that I did hear actually happened, though I didn't see it, was uh, the guys were in the back room before they came out, and the best man was drinking some water. And right as it came time to come out, the best man turned to the groom and poured the rest of his water into the groom's crotch. So it made a very interesting appearance as the groom came out, and it, looked, it didn't look like water had been poured there. It looked like he was really nervous. And whenever I tell that story to the groom, the groom always looks at his best man and kind of moves away just to make sure there's not going to be any kind of problem like that. And uh, as, as you know, what happens is the groom and the best man and the, the pastor come out and take their places in front of the church, And then the processional starts, and everybody starts coming down, and the bridesmaids and the groomsmen are all coming down the aisle. And then finally, that part of it ends, and the doors in the back of the room close, right? And then all of a sudden, you hear some bars for the wedding march. And it goes, dun, 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 dun. And then the wedding march starts, and you all know how that goes, so help me on this. Dun, 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 keep going. And as that happens, the doors open, keep going. And the bride comes through, and the bride is radiant. And I always sneak, keep going, and I sneak a peek, and they're walking down the aisle, and the, you know, the father is all proud, and the bride looks great. And, okay, you're gone. They made it to the front. You guys can stop. And, you know, I always sneak a peek over at the groom, and the groom's face is just like, oh, my gosh, this is exactly why I did this. I am so, so excited. Because we all know the truth that there is nothing more beautiful than a bride, right? There's nothing more beautiful. I've never, ever been in a wedding where the bride wasn't just radiant and beautiful. And uh, I have a picture here of a bride And uh, unfortunately for this bride, uh, our editor cut off the top of her head. But uh, she does have a pretty top of the head as well. And, uh, you know, here's a couple of things. Let me just analyze a little bit uh, the bride. One thing that I have noticed is that the bride never leaves anything for chance. She doesn't just wake up on her wedding day and go, oh, good, it's going to be a good hair day for me. This is just perfect. Or, you know, this is just great. 
my dress just happens to fit perfectly today. Or these flowers just happen to match, you know, the color of my bridesmaid's dresses. That, wow, what good, good luck that is. I mean, there is nothing to chance. Nothing is left to chance because the bride knows that this is her day and she is going to spend, you know, like, she's going to be as meticulous, as intentional, as focused as she possibly can be to make her dream of what this day will be a reality, right? And so nothing is left for chance. Everything is very, very intentional. And the other thing is even though it's the bride's day and the bride has put in a ton of effort to make this day just right, uh, the bride certainly doesn't do it by herself. I mean, there's, there's really scores, dozens, maybe hundreds of people that have been involved in getting this wedding ready. And a lot of them are paid, right? Moms and dads who pay for weddings, is that right? There are a lot of them are paid and there's a lot of money that flows out to make sure that this day is perfect. And then, you know, people are begged to come and, and asked to help and recruited and, you know, just anything that can happen so that all, everybody working together creates this beautiful image on this day. And it's sort of climaxed with, you know, the bride coming down the aisle in all of her beauty. And so uh, it's an interesting thing that when uh, the church is spoken about in the New Testament, one of the metaphors that's used is the church is called the bride, the bride. Now, that doesn't happen a lot. And in fact, there's only a couple of passages where that occurs. Uh, but I just think it's such a colorful, colorful metaphor of what the church is. And uh, we're told, actually, if you have your Bibles, um, and incidentally, Bibles are a great thing to bring to church, and we really encourage you to. And we're selling, we're actually using a new version that just came out. Uh, and some of you are, I know, a little concerned with this version, but we think it's a good version, and it's a conservative version, and it's going to help us. And also, if you're looking for a new Bible, we're selling them for 25% off, so that's all a good thing. But anyway, bring a Bible of some sort, and this is the NIV 2011 edition. And in Ephesians chapter 5, if you turn over to it, you'll see that we have this metaphor of the bride. In Ephesians 5.25, it's actually in a, in a little section that talks about marriage, and it's talking about the husband's responsibility to the wife. And a very interesting comparison is made between husbands and wives and Jesus and the church. And so it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So husbands, you're being compared to Jesus. How weird is that? Uh, and then it goes on to say, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, there is so much to that section and I really don't want to explain it all, but the one thing that you, you totally get is the idea that Jesus is completely committed to his bride, to the church. And in fact, that Jesus is, is working in the church, that one of his desires is to help the church to continue to become more and more and more beautiful, that that's one of the things that Jesus is doing. 
And uh, there's this process then of beautifying that happens between Jesus and his church. And there's really good news, since we are the church, there's really good news for us. And that is that Jesus is on the job and he guarantees that the job will be done well. In Philippians 1.6, it says these words, and just incidentally, because so often we personalize this, we think that this is written like for Kevin, but this was written to a church, the church at Philippi. It was written to a local group of believers just like us, and uh, what we read there is that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. In other words, what we learn here is that Jesus is on the job and that the, the sort of reconstruction project he has for the church, his goal of making the church beautiful is a guarantee because he's on the job. And he says, I guarantee you that in the end, the church is going to look beautiful. The church is going to be exactly what the church was designed to be. And so that's a wonderful thing. But here's the, uh, the thing that we need to know is even though Jesus is on the job, even though that he's going to do that, the reality is we are part of that process too. That it isn't just Jesus doing it and we can sit back and act any way that we want to act or carry on any way we want to carry on. That there's a partnership that is involved here and Jesus does his part, but we do our part as well. And so uh, this week we are finishing our study in the book of Acts and we're going to go back to a beginning section. We sort of skipped over this the first time through. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 42. And this is a very interesting section of the book of Acts because the church has just started. In fact, if you read through uh, the first part of chapter 2, Peter gives this incredible message to all these people that are gathered in Jerusalem. And lo and behold, as he presents who Jesus is, People respond to it, and they believe, and the church is born. And the very first thing that we hear after the church is born is what we're about to read. It's like the bride has just come through the doors, and we're going to describe how the bride is becoming beautiful. That's basically what we have right here. So turn over to Acts 2. You're probably there. And incidentally, let me just ask you this question, because uh, we're going to hit on it here in just a second. Uh, what does church literally mean? We've talked about that every week, so I'm sort of hoping that we can get, get that. What does church mean? It means gathering. Oh, you guys are so good. Yes, it means gathering, okay? So one of the things you need to understand is the church is not this facility. Uh, the church, thank God, is not our sound system. The church is not that we meet at this time during the week. Uh, the church is not a hierarchy. It is, the church doesn't reside in Rome. Uh, the church is gathering. That's what it's always meant. So it's when a group of people who believe come together, then you have the church. That's what the church is. And so what we read here in verse 42 is it says... Of the church, when it describes this, this is sort of a summary statement of what the church does. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, so let me just point out something. It starts off uh, with the pronoun, they. The church is never a, you know, I or a me, even a he or a she. 
The church is always a they because it's a gathering, right? And it's a gathering based on people believing an event that took place, that Jesus died and then rose again. And again, this is like two months removed. Right now when this is being written, this is two months removed. People could actually remember when Jesus had died on the cross. In fact, it was a vivid memory. It had just happened 60 days in the past. They knew about the resurrection. They could have walked out of this place that this was happening about 200 yards away and gone to the empty tomb. This was not distance history. This was not some legend that had grown over a long, long time. This was something that they were all totally aware of. This had occurred. They knew that this had happened. They believed not because they had this incredible faith. They believed because the historical facts backed up what was being said. Jesus died on the cross, and he's not in the tomb. He's risen. He's gone. He's appeared to people as a risen Savior. And so that message then becomes sort of the battle cry or the rallying cry of the church. This is the message we need to tell people. This is what our job is, is to tell people that Jesus died and he rose again and he's living now and he's empowering his church and he's the groomman and we're the bride. All of those things are sort of just pouring through these people's mind. And what's created is a movement, a very powerful movement that really within just weeks of Jesus' death, a large percentage of Jerusalem, this big city for back then, it was an ancient city, so it's not like our cities today, but it was a big city back then, up to 25% of the people in the city, within weeks, within weeks and months of this event occurring, have become believers in Jesus. It is a powerful movement that is now rocking the city of Jerusalem. And the point that's made here is it was never meant just for individuals. It wasn't just meant, and this is one of the very interesting things, living in the society that we live in, we live in a Western society that is individualistic. And so, so often when we read the Bible, so often when we go to church, our thought is always about, well, how does this impact me? How, you know, how does this change my life? What's in it for me? And what's really interesting is that mindset, it, it, it's so ingrained in us, we can't even totally realize, like you're like, well, of course. Of course you ask, what's in it for me? Of course you make dreams for your life. Of course you interact with people based on whether they help you reach your goals or don't help you reach your goals. As I say those things, it's almost like, well, of course. But the reality is, this is a mindset that was not present in this day. They were community-focused. They thought in terms of we, not me. And so the church has always been a we. The church has always been a group of people coming together. The roles of the people in the church aren't just what's in it for me, what's best for me, what works for me. It's how do I make this church, this bride, even more beautiful? That's what my job is. My job is to make this community a beautiful community. And so right out of the beginning, it says they. And this also speaks against something that has really crept into the church. Lots of writing is done on this by people that study church dynamics, that there's sort of a poison that has infiltrated the church called consumerism. And that's the idea that I come to church because I need to get certain things out of church. And I'll come just like I would come 
you know, into a store to buy something is I'll evaluate it and I'll decide if this is going to help me or not help me and if there's something else that helps me more then I'm going to go to that place. And uh, lots of people have said one of the reasons that the church is ineffective in the United States today is because consumerism has people coming in judging whether the church can help them rather than the attitude of I'm coming to help the church. I'm here to build into the church, to make the church everything it can be. And let me just say this as I make that statement. Uh, some of you might be like visiting today. And you're thinking, well, is that guy telling me that I need to commit to this church before I even know anything about it, before I evaluate if this is a good fit for me? And the answer is no, I'm not asking you to do that. Because I think there is a time where you come and you evaluate, is this the gathering that God wants me to be in? And maybe you're not even a Christian. You just are in here and you're checking out Christianity. It is totally fine for you to sit here and think, is this going to help me? That's very natural. But the point is, is that after a period of time, then it's time to say, listen, this isn't all about me anymore. This is about making the church beautiful, about making this gathering everything that it can be. And that's the, the shift that we need to make. Does that make sense? Okay, you, you on board with that? All right, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad, because you know, you're like, okay, this guy's out to lunch. Uh, all right, well, then there's the second word in that sense, and don't worry, we're not going to go this slow through the whole passage, because we'll be here like till midnight, uh, but let me just tell you the same, devoted. Now, devoted is an interesting word, because devoted is not a go-with-the-flow kind of word. It's not a whatever kind of word. It's not, well, you know, I'm sure we'll all work out kind of word. It's not a just, you know, sort of I'll drift into it kind of word. Devoted means intention. Just like the bride is very intentional about her wedding day, very intentional about the impression she's going to make when she walks down the aisle, nothing is left to chance. That's this word, totally devoted. The idea is the church doesn't drift toward becoming beautiful. It's very intentional in how it does it. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes sort of attention to details. It takes persistence. It means continuing on, sort of dogged determination. That's what this word means, devoted. And then we get a list of some things that they were devoted to. And again, this is kind of a summary statement. And then in the rest of this section, it's going to uh, fill it in a little bit. But they're dedicated or devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, let me ask you. Back then, did they challenge and encourage their people to do personal Bible study? How many people would say, yes, they probably did? Don't raise your hand. That's the wrong answer. How many of you would say, no, they didn't? Raise your hand. Okay, you're all right. You're geniuses. And you know why? Because there was no Bible. There was no personal Bible study because there was no Bible. New Testament had not been written. There was one way that they got to hear the teachings of Jesus. And that was what way? The apostles taught them. The apostles had hung out with Jesus for three years. They'd heard his messages, his lessons, his teachings, and they taught people what they knew. And this also meant that people that were sort of like, well, I sort of want to follow Jesus, but I think I'll move away from Jerusalem. That would be a real challenge because it's like you couldn't get the teachings anywhere else. You know, they didn't have them yet on the, the web. There was no iPod kind of thing. Couldn't tune in to Channel 40 or whatever the religious channeling is here. 
They couldn't do that. And so you actually had to go to the temple every day and listen to the apostles teach. It was the only way to get the message of Jesus. And so they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. And again, there was a communal aspect to this. You couldn't do it by yourself. You had to do it with others. There had to be other people there. And not only did they do it in the temple when they would listen to the apostles teach, and incidentally, they taught really a long time, way more than 40 minutes. Yeah, and so that, that's what I sort of want to move toward here. But no, I won't do that. But, you know, they, they would teach all day because people were just like, we've got to get this, this information. We have no other way of doing it. And then they'd also meet in homes and they'd talk about what the apostles had taught that day. And so they would discuss, well, what do you think about what Peter said here or what John was saying here or Andrew or whatever the thing is. And so there was sort of this ongoing dialogue, but it was always in community. It was together in community. And this is not to say that individual Bible study is bad. In fact, it's not bad at all. It's a great thing to do. But God's word is meant also to be ingested in community as you interact with people, as you hear what they have to say, and you push against it, and they push against you, and they say, I think you've got that in your head, but I don't think you're living it out. And it's like, whoa, who told you that you could say that to me? And there's sort of this dynamic of this word is becoming living and powerful in my life because the community drives it home. And that was a dynamic that was happening here in the church. It's interesting, since I've come to Mariners, uh, for years and years and years and years, I have always prepared uh, my lessons just by myself. I mean, I'm in my study, and I put them together, and... Don't ever run them really past anyone. I hope that they're good. Sometimes I'll get some feedback afterwards, but it's pretty much a solo effort. And one of the things that's happened as I've moved here is I've come on to a teaching team. And uh, generally, for this series, this is a series just for our church, but generally, all of Mariner's Church, all the campuses teach the same thing. And the teaching team means I come in and there's a lot of interaction during the week about what we're going to teach. So whether it's with Kenton, you know, the, the senior pastor at Mariners, or Mike Erie, who's the pastor down in Mission Viejo, or Jeff McGuire, who's the pastor of a new startup thing that we're doing on Sunday nights, whatever's going on, we're all talking about this, and I've found I am learning so much more. This is so much better than doing it by myself. And so that's one of the things. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then it says, end of fellowship. Now, what comes into your mind when you think of the word fellowship? Uh, now, I have come just from the South, and in the South, there are churches there. There's a huge denomination that is very powerful in the South, and that is the Southern Baptists, right? And the Southern Baptists all have a requirement on their, in their facilities, on their campus, they must have a fellowship hall, right? Because where else can you go and get punch and cookies after the service than in the fellowship hall? And so fellowship, one thing, is a real churchy term. I mean, nobody uses fellowship. I mean, like fellowship of the rings, maybe. But, you know, in general, we don't use fellowship that much. And uh, fellowship usually has this really sort of watered-down connotation of, you know, punching cookies in the fellowship hall after the service. That is not this word, just so you know. In fact, this word has to do with coming along together side by side with other people to do God's work together, a shared activity of doing God's work. Uh, you, you might, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we talked 
about raising the dust together, the idea that God has given us something to do, and when we do it along with the other people in the church, when we use our gifts and we serve, there's a very powerful thing that happens. That is this word, fellowship. It has to do with people coming together and working side by side. And it says they were dedicated to that. They were devoted to working side by side. And then it says, to the breaking of bread. What comes into your mind when, in a church, I say breaking bread? What does that mean? Communion. It means more than communion here, just so you know. Because back in that day, the idea of breaking bread is what happened at every meal. And in fact, Jesus, if you'll recall, the Last Supper came out of a meal. It wasn't like Jesus didn't have like these little crackers and he had these little things of, you know, little juice, grape juice. And he said, I'm going to do a new thing that you've never seen before. And, you know, and let's pick up the little cups afterwards and don't crack them because they make these weird noises and it distracts everybody after you're done drinking them. He didn't say those things because it was just part of the meal. And he said, I want to invest something or put a meaning into the meal that you've never thought about before. Well, here, breaking bread is really the idea of enjoying each other and enjoying God together. It's hopefully what we do here is when we worship, we're enjoying God together, that we're enjoying each other. Uh, That's really the idea here. So fellowship is the idea of serving side by side. Breaking bread means enjoying each other and enjoying God together. And then finally, you have this idea of prayer. And in this case, again, prayer is meant to be a communal effort. Now, of course, there's private prayer, and the New Testament talks about this, but there should also be prayer where we all come together and pray together. And the idea here is when the church functions this way, the church begins to become beautiful, the way that Jesus wants his bride to be. Now, if you skip down, verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And uh, we looked at this earlier, but in the next chapter, in chapter 3, we actually get a miracle occurring. Peter and John do a miracle just the way that Jesus used to do miracles. And a guy is healed, and there's all kinds of commotion in the temple because of that. And here's the thing that really uh, is kind of an amazing thing, and we don't believe it today. I know we don't, because it's hard for me to believe. God still does miracles and wonders. And the reason so often we don't see it is because we never put ourselves in a place where a miracle is necessary, right? I mean, we're so cautious, and we only go as far as our own strength or our own ingenuity or our own sort of, I could get this done, you know? And we never put ourselves in the place where it's like, oh my gosh, if God doesn't show up, this is going to be a disaster. And God tends to wait. And say, I love it when you get in that place. I love it that when the only way this can be solved is that I come in and do something that just is supernatural. Just goes beyond what you could do. And so we see coming out of the church uh, that the, the followers of Jesus are being bold. And they're taking risks. And God shows up. And then everybody else looks at it and says, whoa. There's something about that group. There's something about that gathering of people. Supernatural things occur. It's awesome. It's even a little fearful. 
In verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. All right, so let me ask you a question. Do you think believing primarily has to do with what you think about something? All right, primarily, if you believe something... It just means you think a certain way. So, for instance, if you believe that Jesus is God, that that's all this is talking about here. When you're called a believer, as long as you believe that, that Jesus is God, then you're cool, then you're good, then everything is fine. Do you think that's the case? Do you know who the Bible says believes that? The demons, the demons believe Jesus is the Son of God. You see, believing never has to do with just what's in your head, ever, never in the Bible. Belief is never intellectual assent. Belief actually is not praying a prayer at some point in your life to accept Jesus. That might be a part of it, but it is not equal to it. Believing is a disposition that you take that impacts every part of who you are. When you truly believe something, you will act a certain way. So if I all of a sudden said, hey, listen, um, you probably will have a hard time believing this, but this building is on fire right now, and if we don't all get up and walk out, this second we are going to be burned to a crisp. Do you believe me? I know not one of you believe me that, uh, about that right now. Not one person. You know how I know? Because you haven't left. <laughs> and you would leave. If you truly believed that, you would leave. It would cause you to get up and walk out. By the way, this is your chance. If this is boring, you, know, you can just get up. I believe, Kevin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Belief always impacts our actions. And here's what it says. Is it says the believers so much believed in what Jesus had done in this idea of community that they actually were selling their property and possessions so that people in their midst would be taken care of, which is a very powerful statement. By the way, this is not the beginning of communism. Some people say, see, communism is taught in the Bible. Uh, They actually still had property after this. This is the idea that uh, they would sacrificially give to support each other. They would actually put themselves in a place where their standard of living wasn't as high so that everybody would have some. And it was not something that was imposed by government or even by the apostles. Nobody told them to do it. They just said, that's the way it should work. If somebody's in need, that's the way it should work. And it was a very powerful thing in the church. In fact, it tells us that people were drawn to the community because they watched this happen. Because it was so extraordinary that people would actually sacrifice to help other people get along. Amazing thing. Then in verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their, uh, in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And just incidentally, this is so interesting because you think in the church today, there's the big group meeting like we have right here. And then there's the groups in homes. That was established actually here. They would meet in the temple courts. They didn't have any buildings to meet in, so they went to the Jewish temple. And they actually did services that were still very Jewish. It's just that they had the answer to who the Messiah was. The Messiah was Jesus. And in fact, eventually, 
the religious leaders said, you can't meet in the temple anymore because we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. You need to get out. But early on, they just went into the temple and they'd have large group meetings in the temple and the apostles would stand up and they would teach just sort of like is happening here and they'd do some worship and it would be kind of a service. But then it says that they went to their homes and they did things together. They broke bread so there was a communion element to that, but it was also just enjoying each other's company and enjoying God and praising God and, and having a great time and having a lot of fun together. All those things are happening in the homes. And then finally it says, uh, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So a very interesting thing takes place. As the church comes together, and does what only the church can do. They stay focused on the people that aren't in the church. And they make sure that they're reaching out to the people that aren't in the church. The church has never been a holy huddle. A way to know that a church is not behaving properly is when all the people in the church are only concerned about what's happening in the church. This church never did that. This church always looked out and said, we will do what we can do to connect with God and connect with each other. But it's always with a mind that we're bringing others in. There's other people that need this. This isn't just for us. And it says here that God added to their number, that their love for God just spilled out onto the people that they lived with and worked with and you know, went to Jewish school with and all those things. It just spilled out. And people were attracted to it. They looked at it and they said, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I know I want to be a part of that. I know I want to do that, to be in that group. And it says that the church grew. These were the things that they did to make the church beautiful. And it was always in mind that the health of the church is such an important thing. You know, the, the saying that Kennedy said years ago, you know, not at, don't ask what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You know, there, there is a sense that this is how it should work in the church. Don't ask what the church can do for you. Ask what you can do for the church. Now, part of that is the church builds you up. The church is meant to build up its members. Absolutely, it says that. But the mindset that we bring is, what can I do to make our church more beautiful? How can I serve? How can I love? How can I participate? How can I lift other people's burdens? How at times can I give burdens to people so that they know that they matter, they count, it's important that you help me? How do you make the church beautiful? We are in an interesting time. Uh, you know, Mariner's Church, Huntington Beach, is in a very interesting time. We are just forming an identity. I mean, in this building, I know that a lot of you have no clue who other people are. I know I've not met a lot of you. A lot of you have not met Low, And we're just getting to know each other. But we're thinking this is so important to get started the right way, exactly the way that the church in Acts did, that we want to emulate the good that that church did. And so let me just tell you a couple things that I think uh, can be really helpful to us here as we get going. So this is sort of, what are you going to do with this? 
Now that we've talked about this, now that we've been in this series, what are you going to do with this? Here's the first thing I want to encourage you with. Uh, It is great that you guys come here. And this is an important time for us. We rally together. We learn God's word. We worship together. We're forming identity. Those are all good things. But let me just make this super clear. There is no way that our church can become what it needs to be if we all sit in rows like we do today. We need to sit in circles. We need to sit just a few feet away from other people and talk to them and interact with them and get to know them and journey with them. That is such an important part of what we do. And at Mariners, we have actually a very easy entrance into these kinds of relationships that that is called Rooted. And Lowe's going to come up in a few minutes, and he's going to talk to you a little bit about this. But here's what I want to say. Now, many of you have gone through Rooted. How many of you have done Rooted before? Okay, good. So about half of you, maybe not quite. Uh, Rooted is basically a 10-week study, uh, 11 maybe to be totally honest, 11-week study. And we come together in small groups, 10, 15 or so people, and we journey together. And it's way more than just a Bible study if you've done that in the past, because along with studying things, uh, there's a lot of just discussion. It's not somebody lecturing. And there's experiences that we do together. So we actually spend times praying together. I mean, long periods of time. You might say, you know, after five minutes, I'm, I'm giving up on the prayer thing. You know, my mind wanders. I can't do it. We come together and pray for like three hours. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And you're right. Oh, my gosh. The first time, I'm a pastor. First time I heard that, I was like, oh, my gosh, three hours. It's awesome. How many of you have done the prayer thing? Is it awesome? It is really awesome. I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing. And we serve together. And uh, we actually share our stories about faith with people that don't know Jesus. Does that make you a little scared? Absolutely. We're all scared. That's such an interesting week. People just don't show up for that week. But, you know, we, we do that. It's a really cool experience. And here's the greatest thing. People's lives are actually changed. I mean, really, there's transformation that takes place during those times. It's an amazing thing. That's coming up. And we're going to form groups out of our church, okay? So we're not asking you to go down with the Irvine people because nobody wants to be down with Irvine people. This is for Huntington Beach and Fountain Valley and those of us around here in the promised land. You know, we're not going to mix with the Canaanites down there. It's going to be a great thing. And we, we want you to do this with us. So Lo will talk a little bit about that. Here's the other thing. In your program, uh, you have an Easter uh, invitation. Would you pull this out for just a second? It looks like this. Incidentally, we're going, to give a, we're going to send a mailer like this. It's actually going to have a different cover. We're going to send a mailer out to thousands of households around this place uh, for Easter. We're hoping to invite people from the community in. Uh, but we all know that the best way to invite people for Easter is for them to get a personal invitation. And we have given you this, not because we need you to stick this up on your refrigerator so you don't forget when Easter is. We kind of think you're going to remember Okay, you're going to remember. This is not for your refrigerator. This is actually to invite people to come to our Easter services. And we're going to have two, one at 9 and one at 11. uh, Because this is the time when every other time in the year people will say no. At Easter, they might say yes. Because it's like un-American not to go to church on Easter. 
You're supposed to go. I mean, you could get hit by lightning if you don't go to church on Easter. So people will show up, and we need you to be bold in your invitations. And that's why we've given you this. We, we, we didn't give it so that you can have it, but that you can give it. And right now, I want you to think, is there somebody in your life, in your community, you know, school, colleague at work, neighbor, family member, who doesn't go to church, who doesn't know Jesus, but they come to mind when we do this? Because here's what we're going to do. This is so exciting. Hold your invitation. Got it? And I'm going to pray for the people that are represented by your invitation right now, okay? Let's pray about this. Lord, we are so grateful that you give us relationships. And we are so grateful that there was a time in the past when somebody, maybe not exactly this way, but somebody pictured us and thought they would invite us to church. And we sit here because that changed everything, made a huge difference. And now we get to be the inviters. And Lord, we pray that these people that are represented by these cards, that you would soften their hearts, that you would open their minds, and that they would say yes when we invite them to come to church. And we know that if they do, Lord, that you have such a great, great ability to change lives and change minds and help people see things totally different. So Lord, make us bold. Help us to actually use these things and invite somebody to come. Not to say no for somebody, but to give them the opportunity. And we are grateful for what you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I began by telling you that the beginning of a wedding is amazing. When the bride comes through the doors, and she is so beautiful, so beautiful. But let me tell you this. Men, is it not true? that the woman you married is more beautiful today than she was that day when you first said, I do. Absolutely. Guys, that's a good answer, by the way. (laughs) But it's absolutely true. There is no question for Julie that Julie is prettier today. I mean, she's physically prettier today. But her personality has blossomed She is so much more mature. Her capacity to love is so much greater today than it was 28 years ago when we got married. And do you know that that's exactly how God has designed the church to move, to become more and more and more beautiful? And it's interesting because in Revelation 21, again, I told you this metaphor is not used a lot, but it's used at the end of the book of Revelation. And we read these words. Uh, John writing in his revelation, he says, I saw the holy city. If you're going there, it's verse 2, sorry, 21-2. I saw, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, or her husband. This is the only place that Jesus calls his bride beautiful. And it's because he said, I who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
we are becoming more and more beautiful. It's Jesus' way of doing things. We're getting better and better and better. And I'll tell you the secret to why a bride is beautiful. Can we bring up the picture one more time of our bride? What is that bride doing? She's looking. Who is she looking at? She's looking at her groom, right? And here it says, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. We become beautiful as we gaze at Jesus. As we recognize that that's what this is about. This is about us being united with Jesus together. We do it as a team. We come together and do it. And the good news is we will succeed. All of the things that we, we blow it in now, all the times when our church won't do what our church should do or we as individuals won't do what we want to do, in the end, we will be beautiful. We'll be exactly designed the way that God intended. And as we gaze on Jesus, Jesus will look on us and say, look at my beautiful bride. As we put him first in our life. The band is going to come up, and we want to spend a little time worshiping. And right now, I want to ask you, let's look at Jesus as we do this. As we worship, let's look at Jesus. And remember again why we're becoming beautiful. We become beautiful for him. Let's pray. Lord, you are an amazing, amazing Savior. And that you give us this imagery of being a bride not only speaks to the value you put on us now, of what you're doing in our midst, of how you're changing us. We are so grateful for that. And Jesus, we want to be this bride. We want Huntington Beach, the Mariner's Church extension in Huntington Beach, in Fountain Valley, to so much be a picture of what you do in the lives of a gathering of people. Help us to become that way. Help us to take advantage of the opportunities that you give. Help us to love our community and love each other and dedicate ourselves to you. And now, Jesus, we give our worship to you because you are the one we're dressed for. You're the one that we gaze at. Thank you that you accept us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.